if you have your Bibles, and this morning I know that you, I do, you do, because they're right in front of you, your pew Bible, page 517, turn with me to Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32, we'll read right through Job 32, and then we'll read actually beyond what the screen will say up till through 33 verse 20. Hear God's word. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in their mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So a lot of burning with anger is what. Verse 6, And Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzite answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let my days, let days speak. And many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Some of you are booing, some of you are applauding. Therefore I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me. I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answered no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there, they answer and answer no more. I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. Yes, he is. Six chapters, he speaks uninterrupted. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that, no, that has no vent. Like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man, nor use flattery towards any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. And then chapter 33, continuing on, because he does so a lot. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue of my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. What my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from peace of clay, moment of humility from Elihu. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. 
You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as an enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of my man's words? For God speaks in one way, and two, though man does not perceive him. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed, and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones, so that his life flows bread and his appetite the choicest food. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we ask that you would blow through your spirit, your spirit does not show up here, it is all for nothing. And so we continue to be a congregation that affirm what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for training in righteousness and for correction and rebuke. And Father, even these words at the tail end of Job, we have conviction of your authority and the sufficiency that we find in your word to bring life and life in abundance. If only we would hear, and listen, and apply your word to us. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now having prayed all that, I do have a confession. There are some scriptures that are a little harder than others. And so I went to... Uh, my wife went to sleep on Friday night, and I stayed up. And no, it wasn't, I know what you're thinking, NBA basketball every Friday night. This time, I was tempted, but I was also struggling to finish these words from Elehu. What is he trying to say? What is going on at the end of the book of Job? So in the book of Job... Three cycles of speeches between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Don't you love those names by now? Nine and by nine or ten months, I would love to be right here baptizing someone named Bildad. I'd even do a Zophar or Eliphaz, but Bildad is really my favorite name, really, of the three. And so by the third round of the speeches, the conversation is going absolutely nowhere. The conversation literarily and theologically is totally dissolving and puttering completely out. Bildad, my favorite guy, he's the second one to speak after Eliphaz in these three cycles of speeches. Job is going back and forth with all his three friends. And so by chapter 25, Bildad says just... Six verses of Job chapter 25. As if he's trying to say, I have nothing more to add to this conversation. In fact, it feels like we're done here. And so after Job gives his poem on wisdom in Job chapter 28, and after Job makes his final appeal for his righteous life and the way, the just ways that he has treated everyone around him, his community. 
in chapters 29 through 31, Zophar, the third friend, we're like, what are you just going to say? We know everybody else has responded. Zophar says not a word. Zophar doesn't even say anything in the third round of the speeches. And so literarily, in the book of Job, the conversation is dying out. Which actually gives us a bigger clue about a theological point that the author is trying to make. Namely, that the doctrine of retribution... Remember when we talked about the doctrine of retribution? Just humor me by doing this. Oh yeah, we, we totally remember that. We totally remember that. You meant that when retribution, that suffering is a sign of sin and it's corollary that prosperity is a sign of piety. Now, you would never live your life based on the doctrine of retribution, where you, like, you would say, no, we at Trinity, we would never do that. You would never say like this, you're suffering, trials are coming in your life, and you would never say, God, what have I done to deserve this? You would not do that. You would not be a Bildad, Elphaz, or Zophar. You would never think when you are blessed, perhaps when prosperity comes into your life, you would never grow proud and arrogant and think, God, he gets to be my father. I get, I'm not the bad, I'm not Billy Graham, I'm Mother Teresa, but like I'm number three in line. Of course he's going to bless me. Of course he deserves, doesn't he see that I'm reading through Trinity Wellsprings Church Bible in a year? I'm reading even the Old Testament this year. And I'm praying, I, I give to church. He owes this to me. He better give me my blessings, they're mine. They're entitled to come to me. You would never say that, but some people outside of Trinity, they wouldn't say it like this. But this conversation of retribution is coming to an end. And so now there emerges a fourth friend named Elihu. He is a young buck. He is long-winded, six chapters. And so he has been lurking all along, listening to this endless Dialogue between Job and the other three friends. He's like, you know, on Facebook, he's like the Facebook lurker. Have you, do you know this? The Facebook lurker. You're having a great conversation. Hartley and I, you know, we're discussing things like, you know, great things you should always discuss on Facebook. Politics. <laughs> racism. Because you think, I'm going to be the first person in the history of the world to change somebody's opinion on Facebook. And so you're going back and forth in the comment section. Me and Hartley, we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden, Dave, young whippersnapper, he comes in and right at the tail end of the conversation, I'm like, Dave, this is not even, this is not your conversation. This is between two older gentlemen, Hartley and myself. Hartley, I've thrown myself in there. Don't worry. I'm including myself in midlife. But this young Dave guy, he just comes up and says, no, you guys better listen to me. I am full of wisdom. You guys sit down on the keyboards. Here I am. This is what Elihu is doing. What I'm trying to say, and this is my first point, Job gave us Facebook. That's why, I'm, that's not really my first point. <laughs> You're like, oh, I, have to, I was writing that down. How are we to assess Elihu as the fourth friend? The question is this. Does Elihu gave the very same advice as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? I know you want to say that. Just go ahead and say that to your friend. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Just say it. Just say it out loud. 
I know you've been wanting to say it. After the service, someone might say, you know what? I too want to be a preacher. I want to go to seminary. That is just so fun to say. I've had the joy, now you get the joy. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Can you say it? So is Elihu saying the very same things as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? Or is he adding something new to the conversation? Many, many interpreters. Now I have to warn you when I depart from many, many interpreters. But many, many interpreters think that Elihu is cut of the very same mold and of the very same cloth, saying the very same things as Bildad, Zophar, and what's the last guy in there? The first guy? Some of you were paying attention, not so much, some, others not so much. They portray Elihu as pompous, pretentious, and what's another P word? Presumptuous. You didn't think I could do it. Pompous, pretentious, and presumptuous, among other not-so-flattering adjectives. But I believe that Elihu adds something different and something new to this conversation. So there's a few reasons why I believe that Elihu deserves some type of rehabilitation in our eyes as we interpret the book of Job. A few reasons why. Number one, Elihu is given a genealogy, which tends to highlight and indicate weight and significance for biblical characters. On the other hand, no genealogy is listed for these other three guys. Elihu is introduced as the son of Barakel the Buzat. Now, you might be thinking, is that mean that he is descended from Abraham's nephew Buzz? Not Buzz Lightyear, Buzz, B-U-Z, from Genesis 22:21. And if you said that, I would be so incredibly impressed. Because if that's the case, then that lends even further credence that maybe, just maybe, Elihu is saying something new and something different and something weighty. He poss possibly comes from the very line of Abraham, the great father of the faith, his own nephew. Second, and more importantly, is the fact that Yahweh in chapter 42 says this to Eliphaz. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for they have not spoken of me what is right. Elihu is left out of God's expression of anger. Job 42 indicates that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they're all told, hey, you three, go offer sacrifices and then go to Job so that Job, like a high priest, can pray for you because you have not spoken of me, says God, what is right. Third is the sheer length of Elihu's answer to Job. Now, six chapters seems to me to be significant. And you could say, well, it seems like, well, he could just be saying six chapters of complete nonsense. That might be the case. You might be married to someone that does this. At least I might be married to somebody that does this. But he speaks, Elihu, for 159 uninterrupted verses. And so after the character of Job, Elihu is actually the most full-rounded, complicated character in the book of Job. He speaks longer than any of the three friends, and he even speaks longer than Yahweh, who's going to go and talk immediately preceding Elihu. And furthermore, 
I'm at a loss to know what to do with Job's confession of sin if Elihu doesn't talk, right? Because from the very beginning, Job is blameless. Job is upright. He's righteous, right? And then God says, Job has spoken to me what is right, not you guys. So then my question becomes, well, why then does Job confess any sin in the whole book of Job if it's not for Elihu's insertion right before the Yahweh speeches. We'll get at that later in a couple weeks. Fourth, in many ways, Elihu sets up and prefigures the Yahweh speeches. That would seem to me, if there was a character in the book of Job that was saying much the same things that Yahweh is about to say, that would seem to me maybe instructive and significant, would it not? Turn to chapter 37, verse 14. Chapter 37, verse 14. This is what Elihu says. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Now, Yahweh is about to say a lot of the same things. Verse 15. Do you know how God lays his commandment upon them? And causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot, when the earth is still because of the south wind, it comes, the south wind comes up from the south, it heats your garments. Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him who does all those things. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Yahweh is going to say some of the very same things that Elihu is saying in chapter 37. Look at verse 5 of chapter 37. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. In the whirlwind speeches, Yahweh says some of the very same things. And so is it the case that Elihu is just droning on and on and on, exact same thing, Zelfath, Bildad, and Zophar, or is he adding something new to the conversations? I think it's the latter. I think he's adding something new to this conversation. Elihu doesn't give the ultimate word, he doesn't give the final word, but he gives a significant word and a penultimate word to Brother Job, who is suffering. So now you say, well, I wasn't even asking the question that if Elihu said something different or not. And now I, I, I thought maybe when you said, gave the, the, you know, the, the whole thing, maybe he's just saying the same thing. Now you convinced me that he's not saying the same thing. I didn't really care in the first place, but here I am listening to you. But now the question becomes, and maybe more relevant to us, what is that word? How is it different than the, from the three friends? And what does that all mean for you and me as we live our life? full of trials and sufferings. Let me give you two, maybe three questions. The first one is this. Are you primarily a victim of trials and sufferings that needs relief? Think about it. When trials and sufferings come upon your life, are you primarily a victim of trials and sufferings that needs relief? Or are you primarily a sinner that needs grace? I want to suggest to you this morning that how you answer that 
has a big trajectory of how you handle suffering and trials that come all into our lives. All of every single one of us deals with some element of trials and sufferings if we live long enough. And how you answer that question will determine if you live an entitled life, if you wallow for years and years being a victim, if you're someone who can never get enough compassion from those around you, they give you compassion. Your wife or your, your husband, they give you compassion. It's never enough for you. Why? Because primarily I am a sufferer that needs relief. Is that primarily who you are? Scripture tells you that you are primarily a sinner in need of grace. Well, how do you respond? Well, if relief comes, great. Scripture says if relief comes into your life, be the first to thank God with a generous spirit. Thank God for it. But grace is what we are most thirsty for. Why? Because our biggest problem is not our sufferings and not our trials. Our biggest problem is our sin. Turn to Job 32 again. You'll see that Elihu burns with anger like four times. This is, uh, he's burning with anger. I don't know if I, have you ever burned with anger, Al? Probably, yeah. I should have asked a woman, right? Us men, we have problems with this. But so Elihu burns with anger with Job because he justified himself rather than God. But then he turns his attention to the three friends. He burns with anger at Job's three friends because they have found no answer to give to Job during all these long dialogue speeches. And so the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, have basically accused Job of secret sins, right? They're saying to Job, Job, I know there's some things in your life. All this suffering doesn't, doesn't just appear in your life. That's not how life works. That's not how God governs the world. Give us some of the secret sins. There's something that is the basis and the cause of your suffering. These are what the three friends say. And Luke doesn't say that. He says that the suffering that has come upon you, that has actually been the occasion of your sin, not the other way around. Do you get that? You're like, we didn't get that. Let me say it like this. The suffering has led to your sin. Your sin hasn't led to your suffering. You get the difference now? Those are two vastly different things to say. And so in a sense, Elenko is saying, I'm not concerned with your secret sins. I believe you. You've led a righteous and just life. But what I'm concerned about is the very public sins. The sins that you have been committing with your mouth as you accuse God of being your enemy. Elenko wants to say, in that, Job, you're not right. And so Elenko wants to address that posture of Job even in the midst of his suffering. Look again, Job chapter 33, verse 8 through 12. This is what he says to Job. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. So he's about to use Job's words against him. The words that he has been uttering in the very midst of his suffering. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his what? As his enemy. And he puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my past. Is this, is this not what Job has been saying? Look at chapter 20, 19 again. 
He has his arrows. The arrows of the Almighty are, are in me. He's mounted a huge siege ramp used to take down fortified cities against only just me, a hapless individual. This is who God is to me. God is my enemy. This is what Job has been saying. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as an enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this, Job, you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. It's one thing to believe that sin is not the result of my suffering. That there is a category of innocent sufferer. It's quite obvious that that is a point that the rest of the book of Job is making. But it's quite another to think that I am completely innocent in the midst of my suffering. And this is exactly what Elihu is trying to get at. People are very hesitant to rebuke sin in a sufferer. Have you ever done that? Somebody comes suffering to you with trials, and you're like, oh, by the way, there's some sin in you. That's bold. But this is what Elihu is trying to get at. Our culture teaches us to show empathy and compassion, and rightly so. These are very good responses to suffering and trials. But what about the suffering that itself leads to sin? What about that? Let me give you three illustrations moving from the more mundane to the more serious. First illustration. A driver plows into my car. It's Joe Maxwell. <laughs> now, it's totally Joe's fault. I was doing nothing wrong. And lo and behold, what am I going to do? My pristine Honda Civic. I know it's going to be total. What am I going to do? I am angry. And let's just say for a moment it wasn't a church member. How would I exit the car? I can imagine a person, you know, they get out of their car with such a great spirit. What a wonderful opportunity today to show patience and long-suffering and grace as I walk this Christian life. And just a wonderful opportunity. And then I can think of what I would say. It's Joe's fault. He's totally at, at fault. So the question is, am I licensed to say everything that pops into my mind at that very moment? I'm the one that's suffering. It's totally the fault of the other. In that moment, if I'm honest, if we're all honest, I will often let my suffering and let my trials excuse my sin. Am I the only one? Thanks, Al. Al and I are together. This is just Al and I. Another example, second example. Larry Crabb once told us, and I was in November at a school spiritual direction. Larry Crabb, author, pastor, or counselor, tells a heartbreaking story. He was working with a woman in his counseling office who was abused as a child. Horrendous story. Terrible circumstance. I don't want to minimize, hear me, I don't want to minimize that suffering one bit, one ounce. But after just a couple weeks of working with this lady, Larry Crabb says to her, you know what? Your sin 
is hurting you more than your suffering. How can he say that? He follows up that gym with even more direct conversation that's trying to pinpoint into your life. He says, what you need from me is not empathy. What you need from me is for me to show you your relational sin. You are bitter. You're closed off from other people. You lash out constantly. And you've justified it your whole life by being the victim. And quite frankly, it's wearing me out. And I don't even want to be your counselor anymore. Not a lot of counselors would say that. Steve and I are like, this wasn't in like Counseling 101. We're not like taking notes from years ago. Like, oh, this is a, this is a great thing to say. It was precisely this very confrontation of sin that was the key towards helping her walk the path of healing and freedom in her life. She'd been waiting for years to hear. Third illustration. Tim Keller, author, former pastor in New York City. He shares in a podcast a, a few weeks ago that he is dying of pancreatic cancer. Tim Keller knows he has about two, maybe three years left of life. And he says something in this interview that really struck a chord with me. He said, you know, my biggest battle right now is not with my pancreatic cancer. My biggest battle right now is not my suffering. It's still with my sin. If Tim Keller had said, you know, my biggest battle right now is my suffering, is my pancreatic cancer, all of us would have been like, oh yeah, I could understand that. I could totally understand that. He said, no, my biggest battle right now is with my sin. Brothers and sisters, hear this. The most significant drama in your life right now is not what will happen to your marriage, not what will happen to your children, not what will happen to your possessions, not what will happen to your career, but my biggest drama right now in my life and in yours is what will happen with my sin. How is the drama with my sin? Am I getting any victory? Am I dealing with the same junk that I was dealing with 10 years ago? Suffering against you often leads to the sin in you know when my wife and I, you know when my wife and I are most likely to sin against one another, when I'm most likely to sin against her, she's most likely to sin against me. Can I tell you, can I tell you the reasons? My wife is saintly, but when she, she loves to sin against me, when she is disappointed in me, when I am the cause of her suffering and trials and disappointment. When it comes on my head, she feels justified in sinning against me. Can you imagine? <laughs> but vice versa is also true, right? When I feel like God, Lisa, well, you said you were going to love me, you know, that's death, his part, and about rich or poor, all this kind of stuff. Something about you, not quite perfect. I'm going to sin against you right there when I feel most disappointed. And you, when you bite my head off for no reason, guess what? You're going to get it. Are you primarily a victim of suffering and trials that needs relief? 
Or are you primarily a sinner that needs grace? Second question is this. What is the primary framework for thinking about suffering? And you're like, do I really need a primary? Do I need a framework? I don't really. I feel like I don't need a framework. You might be. Your framework might be. I don't think about suffering. I just coast through life. I just ignore the suffering, I ignore the trials, I ignore my relational challenges, my emotional outbursts, I just bury that, stuff it down, right? Guys are good at this. That might be your framework. Yes, if that's working, go ahead. But there's two big frameworks to how to think about suffering in the book of Job. The three friends and then Elihu. Let me spell these out to show you the differences. The three friends is suffering as causation stemming from sin. Did you get that? You didn't get it. Suff- suffering as causation stemming from sin. Or suffering as caused by sin. That's one whole framework. Every time that suffering arises in your life, you'd be like, oh, what have I done to deserve this? You can start bawling. God's treating me unfair. You know, God doesn't know how to govern the universe. If he did, he would be better to me in my life. I distrust the goodness of God, by the way. That's one way. That's the, the way and the framework of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I've already told you earlier in the sermon series, don't be a Bildad. That's part of the reason why. The, 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 the other framework comes from Elihu, and his framework is different. His is suffering as education unto righteousness. That, that, that seems sophisticated. It's only five words. Suffering as education unto righteousness. Can you say that? Can you say that to your friend? You're like, I didn't come with a friend. I came with a spouse. Well, let's treat him as a friend just right now. <laughs> suffering as education unto righteousness. Let me show you where I get this. Turn to Job 33, verses 13 through 19. Because you're like, uh, I don't really believe you. Well, if it, maybe it comes from the Word. That's what I'm trying to show you. Verse 13 of Job 33. Elihu asks, why do you contend against him? The big man. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? That's not true. God speaks. He says, for God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. So here's the first way. Verse 15, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. So before the scripture was, how did God communicate? Through visions, or we might say today in modern language, through our consciousness, are these two the same things or two different things? I'm not sure, maybe they're different, but he's communicating with you through dreams. Why? Verse 17, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from man. We might say to expose pride. So he's doing that to turn you aside from what you were doing, all your deeds that are evil, and conceal or expose pride in your life. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. You were going one way, God gives you a, a vision of the night to bring you back from the pit. Here's the second way, verse 19. This is really where he, where he gets at. 19. Man is also rebuked, how? With pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. 36.15 says this. 
He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. You ever thought of that? Look at John 36, verse 15. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. We like to think that God delivers the afflicted by rescue, by redemption. He does that. But the word is also suggesting that God delivers the affliction by their affliction and opens their ear precisely by that trial, that adversity. And so what is God doing? Suffering exposes pride. Suffering shows transgressions and arrogance in the life of a sinner. And suffering opens our ears to instruction, Elihu says, like something never before. Elihu is saying that there is something that comes into our lives through suffering. How about humility? And so the three friends are saying suffering as causation from sin. Elihu is saying suffering as education unto righteousness. Two different frameworks. John Piper says this. Job is suffering not as a punishment for sin, but as a refinement of his righteousness. Job had said, I'm a righteous man. God must be my enemy, therefore. The friends had said to Job, Job, you're a wicked man. Neither one fully correct. Elihu's new contribution is the idea of suffering as education unto righteousness. Job is a righteous sinner. So I ask you, how should I process my third son, Tristan's autism? The fact that he is seven years old and four months, and he still doesn't speak. If he says 20 words on any given day, huge victory. My wife and I, we go walking on the beach, we see two and, and three-year-olds. We come to church, we see two and three-year-olds. They're blabbering to their parents. We don't get any of that. If my primary framework to think about that is this, it's not fair. What did I do to deserve this as a parent? What did he do? He's just a little child. What did he do to deserve that? He can't communicate with his brothers? His, 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 he doesn't have sisters. Why am I saying sisters? You can't communicate with his parents. Or maybe it's a relational challenge. Maybe in the, the dark night of the soul, in a dirty, difficult time, you've said this about your spouse. What did I do to deserve this as a spouse? I know that I, you know, I chose to marry her or I chose to marry him, but I didn't know what I was really getting into. This kid of mine, the grief they give me, this job of mine, if that is your primary framework for thinking about suffering, you might be bitter, you might be full of lots of regrets, you might conceive of yourself as always the victim, you might know in your head that God is good, but in your heart, you'll have a hard time trusting in the goodness of God. Two weeks ago I suggested that sin is a natural disposition to distrust the goodness of God. Have you ever been there? God, if you're good, look at all the stuff. Look at the stuff in my life. But what if my framework of suffering, one of at least the tools in my tool belt, is that suffering as education unto righteousness? How might I think differently about my son Tristan's autism then? 
Now, I don't know what autism does for Tristan. He might be happier and way more content than his dad will ever be. You're like, yeah, you, you have a little bit of Soren Kierkegaardian you know, angst in you, especially as you're preaching through Job all these weeks. You can say that. I'll be fair. Is my son's autism going to humble my wife and I like nothing ever has before? Suffering as education unto righteousness, I'm going to leave open the possibility. In fact, I'm going to plead with God. God, can't you use his autism to refine me in my faith, to make me more like Christ, to make me more humble like Jesus was humble all the way to the cross. Maybe my Savior longs for my own sanctification so much that when I plead for relief, guess what? He gives me suffering and trial because He cares for me that much. Is that crazy to say? Maybe I begin to realize just ever so slowly that the Christian life is not designed to make me happy, but to make me holy, to make me more like Christ. And the suffering and the trials are one of the only ways that God sees fit to do that in my life and in yours. Think of a suffering right now. Pause. Close your eyes, maybe. A suffering, a trial going on right now in your life. A regret, a disappointment, a trial, a relational challenge. How is God using that to refine your righteousness? To humble you, to open your ears like they've never been opened. God delivers the afflicted, those afflicted by pride, those afflicted by self-centeredness, those afflicted by the propensity to live like God doesn't exist. And I was including all of us in those, right? You get that. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. You think this only comes from Elihu in the book of Job? No way. Same idea is present in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. The writer says, Our Father disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Later yields the peace, peaceful fruit of what? Of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering as education unto righteousness. Why don't I, why don't you rejoice in your sufferings like the Apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 5. Read Romans 5. He rejoices in his suffering. What in the world? I want to ask a really theologically astute question when I read Romans 5. What? Have you ever done that? You're so, you're so theologically astute. Why do we say that? Why do we groan at disbelief? Because our framework of receiving God's grace is primarily in terms of relief from suffering, right? So you're going through trials, you're going through something. God brings relief into your life, and oh, you're thankful. Oh, you can rejoice. That is easy to rejoice. But what if God's grace is also doled out in my life to refine me? Can I receive my trials as a grace that refines me? that makes me stronger in my faith, that makes me more like Christ? If so, then I, like Paul, can rejoice even at my sufferings. I promised three questions. Let me stop there. 
Some of you are like, oh, you know, I'm going to have to email you because I'm so, I'm on the edge of my seat. You're like, we're not really thinking. How does God justly govern our world? Is it just? Is it to make us happy? Is it to make us comfortable? Or is it to refine us into the very image of the suffering servant, Jesus, the crucified one? Think about that. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we give you praise and thanks. Thanks for Joe.